Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny with another Democracy Sausage, which comes to you weekly from the Australian National University. I'm with the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, as is my co-host Maria Taflaga, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Uh, hello, Maria. Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, political scientist, as you will know if you listen to this podcast. And we're talking this week with Andrew Lee. He's a local member here in Canberra, a local federal member for FENA. He's also the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities, Treasury uh, and Treasury, uh, and uh, he's a former Professor of Economics here at ANU, so uh, very, very um, um, fondly regarded in, in, in his respective uh, links, of, links with this university. Um, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you back. We've spoken to you on a couple of occasions in the past. Great to be back, uh, Mark, and uh, thanks, Maria, for having me on. And we've got a good topic to talk to you about because we've been speaking, we've done a few podcasts, I think you'd agree, Maria, uh, recently, one way or another, which have been about the Liberal Party and the sort of crisis that it's in. There's been, you know, discussions with with people about the sort of demographic challenge, even George Brandis, uh, um, I think, quite recently, uh, talking about what he called the sort of geographical challenge of facing the Liberal Party. The Labor Party is assumed to be in robust good health. I mean, let's face it, it's uh, it's in power federally and, and, and pretty solidly so, even if its actual majority is, is not huge. Uh, and it's in power everywhere else on the mainland as well and only not in power in Tasmania. And even there, there's a, a, a pro-yes um, conservative government in Tasmania and... Um, and some, you know, some I think admirably outspoken uh, moderate liberals as well. So it's hardly a, um, you know, a reactionary kind of divide. If I can, if I can just put Bass straight, Bass straight like that. Um, <clears throat> but this is this topic we're going to talk about today is about the Labor Party, and it stems off a speech that you, Andrew, have given uh, to per capita at the John Cain lunch uh, just yesterday, as we record this. You've called it a more competitive Labor Party, and it's really about factions. Now, that almost feels like a, a kind of a, an arcane, almost um, old sort of topic. Most people, I imagine, would think that 
Factions are a bit of a thing of the past with the Labor Party. We don't hear as much about them anymore. Perhaps that's you're about to tell us that's because they've become so institutionalised, but we just don't hear about those kind of big clash of ideas and those big philosophical differences that the factions tended at least to uh, sort of organise around in the past. But what you're saying is that um, it, it's become a real problem in the Labor Party and it needs to be called out, and you've done that in this speech. And I think as a, as a frontbencher, um, that's pretty uncommon and pretty admirable that you're speaking so plainly. Uh, well, thanks, Mark. So certainly, I love the Labor Party. I've been a member all my adult life. I'll die with my Labor membership still valid. Uh, and I see Labor as being the fundamental reforming force in Australia. Uh, you can It's not too much of an exaggeration to say that the history of Australian policymaking is reforming Labor governments, followed by the fallow periods in which the coalition bumbles around for a while until <laughs> Labor comes back to power. Uh, and as you say, Labor is uh, at an electoral high point. Not since the early 1900s have we been doing so well electorally. Uh, we've also done well demographically. So the caucus is now 53% women, 6% Indigenous, uh, has a whole range of people from non-English speaking backgrounds. Yeah, but- that's true, isn't it? It's, 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 it's quite a different uh, situation from the Parliamentary Liberal Party, which still reflects where the Labor Party was, I guess, two decades, a bit more than that even. That's okay. right. The share of women in the in the co- combined coalition party room now is the same as what Labor was in 2001. Uh, they have two First Nations re- representatives. Uh, we have six in our caucus. Uh, but the, the role of and, faction- and as you say, there's a lot of other people of diverse backgrounds as well in the, in the Labor caucus, indeed in the parliament, but, uh, but uh, quite a number in the Labor caucus now. That's right. And uh, and this isn't irrelevant to the topic that we're discussing today. Uh, one of the exercises that I did in the John Cain speech was uh, what I'd call a, a steel man exercise. So you don't want to fight straw men. You want to make the strongest case uh, for factions. And I think the two strongest cases are, firstly, that while factionalism in the Labor Party is at an all-time high, the Labor Party's electoral success is very strong. And secondly, that factions have been able to ensure a more diverse Labor Party, uh, which is to to the benefit of Australians because we now better reflect uh, modern Australia. Can you unpack that a bit? You know, why have factions helped with diversity? I think a lot of listeners would find that counterintuitive. When pre-selections are carried out one by one, it can often be easy to say in each successive case, oh, the bloke was the better candidate, the bloke was the better candidate, the bloke was the better, better candidate. I remember a while back- uh, can, can I just interrupt you there? Just, just to be clear about that, that, that's sort of the argument that we get from the Liberal Party and it's, it's, it reflects a different structure really of the, the Labor and Liberal Parties, the Liberal Party being a much more kind of federalist structure and it having, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, local ballots for pre-selections. If you don't have centralised control, it becomes hard to pick an overall representative team because each local electorate elects its own candidate and you can theoretically end up with, uh, for 151 electorates, 151 men, for example. Precisely. Theoretically, yeah. yeah. And so one of the things that the factions have overseen is the implementation of the, the affirmative action rules uh, and also thinking in terms of making sure we have a diverse slate of candidates. So I want to put those arguments up front in the John Cain speech because I do want to make sure that I'm not giving short shrift to my friends who are in factions, which is, which let's is be basically honest, everyone. Basically, basically everyone, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so of the uh, federal caucus now, only two of us are not in factions, everyone else are in factions. 
And so the people in factions are, uh, to a person, talented, thoughtful, idealistic, hardworking. Uh, my critique is of the way in which the party structures uh, fit modern Australia, uh, not of the people that have come through that uh, those factional structures. And one of the things I've, I've been concerned about is that the space for being non-factional in the Labor Party has dwindled. Uh, and I'm worried that total factionalism, the Labor Party in which uh, it is a requirement to join a faction, uh, becomes a, a less attractive party for a young person to join. It effectively means that we're saying to a young person who might be choosing between supporting a teal independent or supporting a green or supporting the Labor Party, look, if you join the Labor Party, you don't just need to join our team, you then need to pick a team within a team. Uh, and that's perhaps an archaic thing to be asking of a, of a young person, I believe potentially loses us new idealistic recruits, especially in an age in which uh, being independent-minded is, uh, is prized, and in an environment in which the ideological fissures between left and right have, have narrowed considerably. So, so what are the implications of, 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 I guess, failing to join a faction uh, for, you know, a young aspiring person who is joining the Labor Party? How might that affect how they end up navigating the, the party? Uh, well, Maureen, in some states, it means you can't be involved in the party's policy committees. In most states, it would mean you can't have a decent shot at pre-selection. Uh, so it effectively makes you a second-class citizen within the party. I think that's a bad message to be sending to uh, young people who want to get in engaged in the party. Uh, I don't think it's, it's healthy for us to be saying uh, that if you choose to have the status where your only loyalty is to the Labor Party, then you can't contribute as much as somebody who uh, picks a faction. Yeah, so that, I suppose, is a, a pretty, um, I guess, pretty straightforward idea, really, which is that within the party, once you join it, if you're hoping to get preferment, to, you know, if you're hoping to climb the ranks, uh, uh, get involved in, as you say, policy committees and perhaps even eventually stand as a candidate, that you need to have endorsements within the within the party itself to in order to have the numbers because if you don't you are going to be going up against someone who does the left or the right will always or in some cases both will have if it's a free ballot and some of those ballots aren't even free they're just allocated between the factions this is a left seat you know the previous member was a member of the left therefore this is going to the left and both factions are going to be supporting the left candidate and a talented individual who may be a great Labor Party loyalist, may be a great thinker, may have a great uh, contribution to make, doesn't stand a chance of getting many more votes than her own. That's right. And in Victoria, where the stability pact between left and right has allocated electorates between factions, it means that if an electorate is allocated to the right, and yet the best candidate that Labor could stand is from the left or is non-aligned, then we don't put our very best person into the field. And that might then mean we're standing candidates uh, who don't do as well electorally or, or aren't as good at representing their the views and the complexion of their, their local electorate. Uh, that uh, that divvy up, factional divvy up of seats uh, doesn't serve us well electorally or representationally. Yeah. Now, how bad do you say the situation is? Because uh, it seems to me in the speech what you're arguing is that the situation is worse now than it's ever been. 
Faction, factional power is certainly at an all-time high in the Labor Party. Uh, you see this manifested not just in Victoria, uh, where on one analysis of the last two decades, uh, only 10 out of 143 uh, candidates chosen for winnable seats have been through open member ballots. Uh, but you also see it in, in other parts of the country where not being in a faction effectively rules you out of contention for being an active member of the Labor Party. Uh, I, I mean, I think factions are fine, but I just think not being in a faction should be fine too. It, it's pretty unique, isn't it, Maria, when you think about it? That I mean, if you if you join a, a footy club, uh, you know, you're a big Carlton fan like I am, um, you, uh, you, know, you don't have to then join some sort of subgrouping in it in order to, ex, you know, truly express and contribute as a, as a fan. And it would be the same if you're a member of a faith group or you're a member of, uh, uh, you know, your local uh, whatever club it is, uh, whatever hobby you're going to. But you join a political party and it seems like if you're going to make any kind of, you know, sophisticated level of contribution, the party is sort of internally organised. I mean, it's almost like we've got... Parties within parties. Well, that's 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 precisely sort of kind of what parties. it is, and mm. um, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to contrast it with, say, UK Labor, for example, which has explicit rules about parties within parties because. In the case of the UK, factionalism hasn't been a constructive force. It is it is actually threatened to destroy the party on 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 multiple occasions. And I suppose that is kind of what is interesting about um, Labor as a as a sort of uh, factional entity. It's been a, it's, it has been one for many decades now. I think fifty or sixty um, in in a heavily sort of factionalized form, and it and it has been. Like as as Andrew has sort of argued, like it can be very productive, can lead to dispute resolutions, it can allow the party to have debates constructively. But you seem to be saying that the real problem is now that the space to not be in a faction is higher than ever before. Which I'd like you to sort of explain how that how how that has occurred, and that essentially you, you're not seeing the same kind of competitive tension that mm. used to drive the factional system productively in the halcyon days of the Hawke government, for example? Well, there's two big changes. One is that the number of non-aligned representatives has declined. Um, it's uh, in recent years been, been uh, anywhere between one and three, uh, meaning that uh, I personally have constituted everywhere from one-third one to 100% of the uh, non-factional <laughs> members in the caucus. Uh, See, and that's power. <laughs> and uh, and we've also seen a, a, a collapsing of the centre-left. So if you go back to the Hawke days, there were three factions. Uh, the centre-left had about a quarter of the caucus in 1984. Uh, but the collapse of the centre-left uh, meant that then we had duopoly factions and now the decline in the number of non-aligned representatives have meant that that duopoly uh, maintains a, a strong degree of power and tends to to look to find accommodations. So factions are at their best when they channel ideological disagreements. I still remember going as a whippersnapper along to the uh, New South Wales Labor Party conferences in the early 1990s and having uh, Graham Richardson and John Faulkner go at one another both cabinet ministers, both terrific orators. You could have heard a pin drop in the Sydney, Sydney town hall as they uh, uh, railed against one another. But they were they were arguing over big ideological questions. The risk now is that factional accommodation, such as the Stability Pact, uh, means that you don't get the degree of healthy intellectual competition uh, that factions at their, at their very best can help to channel. It's so it's a spoils system instead. 
that's that's the risk that yeah. you you get you get uh, a duopoly and then collusion within within the duopoly to uh, put on my assistant minister for competition. That. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you actually have sort of ministerial uh, kind of professional interest in this in a, in a way um, because uh, there's there's kind of. Um, as you say, kind of duopoly, a duopoly organising itself within the Labor Party, and so you don't have a free and competitive marketplace for the best people to rise. And Labor, Labor has always been the party of ideas. We've always thrived on intellectual dispute. One of the ways in which we've made such a big mark on the nation is by having big debates within the party. And some of those have been quite messy, right? They've been held in public. They've seen people disagreeing in public. They've seen sitting governments, uh, you know, sort of fielding kind of uh, friendly fire, if I can put it like that, from their own side. But ultimately that's been to the benefit of of a reform party. Uh, they're messy, but that doesn't mean that they are, they're all electoral downside, Mark. Yeah. So when someone outside the party says, well, I don't agree with the Labor Party's policy on X, but I did see that there is someone within the Labor Party who agrees with me, but who's in the minority. Um, so now I recognise I don't have to agree with every Labor policy in order to be a supporter of the party. Uh, so in that sense, I think debate within the party can help us win more voters because uh, it, it gives us a slightly wider tent. Uh, and a wider uh, footprint, really, doesn't a wider it? Footprint. I mean, yeah. That's uh, footprints better than tent. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that means that people, are, are able to recognise uh, that this is a party that prizes debate, but also this is a party in which they can see themselves. I wonder if the uh, the sort of growth of the Greens is in some way attributable to a sense on the left of the spectrum amongst uh, people, young people coming into uh, political maturity, for example, uh, deciding the Labor Party is too much of a kind of a machine because they don't see that kind of muscularity from the left faction, for example. Yeah, we certainly need to be aware of uh, electoral threats, uh, including that coming from the Greens. Uh, you know, I would always want to see a young person join a political party that can form government, as I like to say to my Greens friends. So who is your favourite Greens Prime Minister? <laughs> uh, theirs is, is fundamentally a party of protest, uninterested in, in governing. Uh, and so I think it's a mistake for a young person to join the Greens if they have, have the opportunity to join the Labor Party. But I also want to make sure that we're making Labor as attractive as possible. And when I see young Labor uh, having almost no non-aligned uh, people and being entirely factionalised. Or when I go on university campuses and I see two different Labor clubs, one for the left faction, one for the right faction, I don't think that sends a very good message to uh, a young person interested in progressive politics. They've, they've got to decide their faction before they even join yeah. the Labor Club on Orientation Week. And they might have joined because their two heroes, uh, let's just pick a couple, Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers, they might think these two are really great, you know, because that's their, their 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 opinion, having watched politics and so forth, and they like the Prime Minister, they like the Treasurer. They're unaware, perhaps, that they're on they're from different they're factions. Different factions, yeah. And if someone tells them, no, you know, you have to join the right because, um, you know, that's the that's the only place for you, sort of thing, and and it involves, you know, some sort of act of disloyalty against a Prime Minister who's from the left. Which brings me to another question. How how much of this ma sort of maturity of factions is a kind of an instrumental thing? I guess we're talking about this already to an extent in terms of the way they uh, facilitate uh, advancement in the party. But has this kind of institutionalization of factions over time and the maturing of it stripped out some of the ideological differences? Because I don't get a sense that 
within Labor, there is that kind of um, heated uh, philosophical argument as, as as much as there used to be, even during period, previous periods of government. I think back to the, the the blowback over the MX missile decision that Bob Hawke was involved in, and you compare that to say AUKUS now, and there's just, there was there was no reaction from the left at all. Uh, there's still a lot of healthy debate, and I would certainly expect issues like AUKUS to be debated at our national conference in Brisbane uh, next month. Uh, that's a national conference that Australians will be able to watch live streamed on the on the internet, uh, unlike other political parties that hold theirs in secret. Uh, but we do thrive off healthy debate. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a great selling point of, uh, of the Labor Party. We also thrive off our membership. Uh, we do a lot of in-person campaigning. Uh, and to ask our members to go out and knock on doors and make telephone calls, uh, we need to also say to them, uh, when comes time to choosing the, the candidates, uh, you will have a direct say. Yeah. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr Andrew Lee. Um, and we talk. Uh, yes, well, Professor, that's right, Professor Angeli. Interesting for the context of democracy sausage. Uh, doctor was right, not Professor. Had I been Professor, I would have had a potential Section 44 issue. Uh, Are you serious? Because uh, the ANU was constituted under a federal act and so could potentially be construed as an office of profit under the Crown. Uh, so definitely Doctor, no ties to university. <laughs> you see, don't, bring, don't bring the court case. You oh, see, Maria, I, see. I knew all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shit, I had no idea. Oops, I swore. <laughs> no. No, no, I think it's entirely appropriate. That's what we don't want is any more Section 44 cases. Yeah. Um, that was a very interesting moment back in, I think it was 2017, when we had that sort of whole spate of them, mostly over other issues uh, associated with heritage, you know, where people were born or where their parents were born and citizenship and all that. But, yeah, completely sort of bizarre, kind of a blue sky political scandal. It was remarkable. I was reporting on it at the time. Um, I want to talk about... What this means, you know, what what Labor's factions, for example, if Labor's not careful, what it could mean. They 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 can be corrosive, in all the ways we've talked about. You know, stifling debate, stopping the best candidates coming forward, and so forth. Parties, even in dominant electoral positions like the Labor Party is, uh, can be vulnerable, can't they? Things change. We've seen this happen around the world with a whole number of kind of what you might say are parallel parties in other countries. If you go to that in your speech. 
Absolutely. So you look at the uh, party, Greek Social Democratic Party, PASOK, which from 2009 to 2015 went from being the biggest party in the Hellenic Parliament to the smallest. Yeah. Uh, they lost nine out of 10 voters just over a six-year period. Uh, you look at the French Socialists, which held the presidency in 2017 and got 2% of the presidential vote last year. Uh, so the- And it was the sort of collapse of right and left uh, or the falling back of them uh, that saw the emergence of Emmanuel Macron in, in uh, you know a term before that, wasn't it? Absolutely. Mm. But this notion of pacification, the- uh, I'm glad uh, you said that because I, I struggle with it every time. Yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> this isn't just a Greek drama. This is a story which has yeah. occurred in, in other countries. You look at the uh, uh, Irish Labor Party, the Israeli Labor Party, the Austrian Social Democrats, the Dutch Labor Party. Uh, you, you never want to be resting on your laurels. It's always important to be uh, updating your- systems and so your party is as fresh and uh, appropriate to a modern age as it can be. Uh, and for the Labor Party, which has had such a strong tradition of democratisation in the broader electorate, I think it's really important that we're also showing that in our own systems, that we are as internally democratic as we can be. And practices such as show and tell. Which, yes, well, uh, I wanted to come to this, show and tell. This is, this is. I think people will find this very disturbing. Go to that question. Yeah, so show and tell uh, is a factional practice in which factional members are asked to bring their ballot paper to a factional table hand it over, have it filled out by the person on the on the factional table, and then take it back and put it into the ballot box and have their name marked off. Um, that's a practice which is uh, which occurs in some jurisdictions by some factions, uh, but which would be against state or Commonwealth electoral law uh, if it was practiced in a general election. Yeah, you cannot influence the vote of a federal parliamentarian, for example. It's against the law. Um, and yet that's what's happening really in that case. And there are there are there are other versions perhaps not so dramatic, but which amount to the same thing. They don't have to be um uh, you know, actually filling in ballot papers for people, but there are factions. That's how the factions enforce their discipline. If they bring thirty-two or forty-six votes or whatever it is to to a particular contest, uh, and they know about that, and then they can't deliver that forty-six votes, then someone needs. You know, there are there are questions asked, and so you end up with this situation where people are showing each other their votes to verify that they've filled in for the left candidate or the right candidate. Um, that is so so contrary, I think, to what most people would say is the no, the whole notion of what was what is known around the world as the Australian ballot, otherwise known as the secret ballot. It is a non-secret ballot, and therefore it is a step away from that, isn't it, Maria? It's a corruption of that idea. Oh uh, well, yeah, obviously, and um, and I think the point about the fact that it it actually is likely not to be um, legal. Um, if, 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 well, not to be legal if practiced um, at, at, at other elections is, is a good point. Um, and it kind of, I mean, so to play devil's advocate, right? So, you know, a factional person might say, well, we have the debates internally within the factions. So I suppose, you know, Andrew, what, what's, what's wrong with that? You know, what's wrong with having the debate internally within the faction and then taking that position and, and, and thrashing that um, out at the factional level? After all, that's how the quota, for example, was, was agreed to. The left took that to the right and, the, and, they, and they had to make a, a deal. So, you know, I'm asking you to make the case for internal party democracy, which is going out of fashion in parties all over the world. Yes, so certainly that is what uh, my friends in faction say when I ask them about show and tell. But I think it's difficult, Maria, for us to justify a practice internally, which if used externally, we would oppose. Yes. Uh, we're we're a, a party that is always 
valued democracy, valued egalitarianism, taken the view that the secret ballot was a way of ensuring that bosses didn't stand over their workers, uh, and recognised that decisions made by the many tend to be better than decisions made by the few. And made freely as well. Indeed. Uh, we don't go for coercion in this country, at least we don't think we do. That's right. And so, and, and what this is in some sense what distinguishes factions within the Labor Party from factions within other social democratic parties. So the Democrats have the New Democrat Coalition, uh, British Labor has Blue Labor. Uh, but those what do groups, they do? Swear a lot. Uh, <laughs> a lot uh, those groups are informal. They tend to be sort of lunch type gatherings or they'll get together from time to time. We've seen a bit of that in the Liberal Party, haven't we? The, lun the monkey pod lunch group. The monkey, monkey pod, pod conservatives, the prayer group, the modern liberals, and my favourite, the ambition faction. Yeah, I like the, the ambition Party. faction because they're just telling it how it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if there's any people who are members of both factions, you know, because I, I think some of the moderates would fit well into the ambition faction I, because I they, be they're strangely silent when it comes to The old story, which might be apocryphal, was that Scott Morrison tried to join multiple groups and was only found out when the two groups that he joined uh, decided to have, choose the same restaurant for their event one evening. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> But, yes, uh, I do recall this now. This, yeah. uh, this, this could never happen within the Labor Party's factional structure where the factions have tight membership lists, uh, hold uh, formal meetings, taking minutes, have constitutions, uh, bind their members. Uh, the factions are, are of a different character within the Labor Party than they are in social, other social democratic parties. Well, how receptive are your colleagues to actually changing this? Is this something that, you know, individually they might say, yeah, you're right, Andrew, it is terrible, but but not actually, like, you know, is there the sort of political capital or the push to sort of change this within the party? Well, I only gave the speech yesterday, so uh, <laughs> oh, wouldn't, wouldn't be reasonable to say that there's a large momentum for, uh, for change. Well, but, you haven't been deselected yet. <laughs> but my hope is to continue a, a conversation which ultimately gives us a, a stronger party. Now, I gave this speech out of a, a love for the party that I've been a member of for the last 32 years and a desire to see it be as strong electorally as it can be. Uh, I think we've, we're, we're, we're doing very well electorally at the moment. I think we have two terrific officials, a, ter a great prime minister, a wonderful cabinet. Uh, we need to ensure that the party systems support that great government as well as they can uh, and that they, they are systems that Australians look at uh, with a sense of, uh, of seeing, seeing themselves and seeing those systems as being what you'd expect of uh, Australia's oldest and greatest political party. Now, I'm sorry to labour the point, if you don't mind that uh, expression, um, <laughs> But I want to go back to this question of of you know what the factions actually mean to individuals and and I suppose relative to each other philosophically speaking, because many people who've been watching politics over the last ten years and and for longer than that will have watched as a right faction Labor leader did very well in the 2016 election, didn't do so well in the 2019 election. I'm talking about Bill Shorten was replaced by a left faction uh, sort of derived uh, Anthony Albanese and it's probably true to say that the platform put forward in general by the two leaders are the reverse of each other. That is that there was a more progressive, more economically expansive and redistributive uh, agenda put forward by Bill Shorten, uh, more ambitious climate change targets for example as well. Uh, Albanese comes in and 
you know, I mean, I know why this is in a lot of ways. You know, there was sort of a, a degree of uh, elective realism, electoral realism about the, the new platform in light of what had gone wrong in 2019. But nonetheless, we see a more pragmatic, more probably socially conservative uh, presentation from the left-wing Labor leader than we saw from the right-wing Labor leader. Most people would probably agree with that as a generalisation. Ideology doesn't perfectly map onto onto left and right. In in general, I would say that my friends in the left faction tend to be more socially socially progressive uh, than my my uh, friends in the right faction. Uh, the right faction is characterised probably by having more economic rationalists, for example, more free marketeers. Uh, but there's a, a lot of blurring at the uh, at, at, in the middle, uh, but in categories. And of course, parties' platforms are, are the result of uh, an entire entity, not, yes, ju- not just, not just of the a, leader. A, of a leader. Um, so parties, you know, factions don't have to have a, a tight ideological divide, but they do benefit the party, I think, Mark, when they're used to channel uh, healthy intellectual debates. Yes, and this goes back to your point about running a, you know, running sort of arguments in defence of factions, at least up to a point. The stability they can bring, they can, they can, they can provide that level of uh, sort of centralised, coordinated uh, decision making in such a way that the party can present a coherent line to the electorate, and that. It, one that is appropriate so that you get those kinds of corrections and you are able to be com- competitive electorally uh, next time you face the voters. Um, and they they do deliver stability, but the price of that stability is the quieting of dissenting voices, the marginalising of dissenting voices and indeed of talent. And, and you're, you're an example. I mean, I'm so, sorry to put you on the spot like this, but as we said, you're a former professor from this university uh, you have an elite level of education. You're highly regarded intellectually. Your output's been extraordinary. Um, there are people in the ministry whose qualifications come nowhere near yours in the in the cabinet. I mean, um, it's it's an example, isn't it? Right here of the way you can't argue for more faster progression because you just don't have a machine behind you. Uh, this isn't about me. I mean, I, 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 I appreciate, appreciate the kind words, but I would very happily uh, have you name any cabinet minister and I'd be ha- happy to talk about their talents and the things that they have that I don't have. Academic uh, qualifications are one thing, but as William Buckley once said, he'd rather be ruled by the first 2,000 names, 2000 names in the Boston phone book than by the entire faculty of Harvard University. Uh, so there's uh, there's Yeah, well, there's Harvard's, insights. A, Harvard's a hard case, right? I mean. <laughs> there's insights that you, you bring from academia, but there's also great insights that you get from being a former truck driver, being a former a former principal, uh, having uh, uh, work, worked as a uh, social worker. Uh, and the longer I'm in the caucus, the more I recognise that its strength comes from its diversity. Uh, one of the, th- the the points I stress in the speech is the need to ensure that we've got more people of diverse interests coming in and also more people with deep ties in their communities. Because the conversation in the caucus really is best when it's informed by that plethora of voices. It is, it's at its weakest if everyone is trying to be a poll-crunching, number, number-calculating machine focused only on the arithmetic and not on, on the philosophy, as, yeah. as John Button once put it. Yeah. Oh, that's seems like to be the essential risk here. Like if you're asking young people who are idealistic to join a faction basically via their university clubs, you're actually socialising them immediately into a, a sort of much more restrictive set of 
norms about what's appropriate in this political party, about what is allowed to be discussed and what is not. I can sort of see many like brilliant ideas just dying before they're even expressed, you know, as a result of that. And I can see a lot of people being really alienated by being sort of forced to, um, yeah, to, to, to demonstrate such a high degree of um, discipline, which is something that the Labor Party has been criticised um, since it developed the idea of discipline at the turn of the last um, century. And as, as a political scientist, you know, it, it's actually one of the things that would be reinforcing professionalisation, which is something that counters a social worker um, or someone with deep ties in their community or a truck driver actually making it into federal politics in the first place or state politics in the first place, let alone uh, sitting around the cabinet uh, table. Yeah, I mean, those, they're all examples I've drawn from the uh, Labor caucus, so certainly we Is Glenn we do. Still, still there? Is Absolutely, there? Yeah. yes. He's and a former truck driver, isn't he? No, Glenn was the person I was, I was thinking oh, okay. of. And, you know, if you're talking about uh, road safety for truckies, it really helps to have somebody in the room who's driven a big rig. Uh, and as we go into discussions, I've, I've actually found myself over the last 13 years a little bit more reverting to type, trying to make sure that I'm bringing the perspective of an economics professor into the room because that's what I uniquely add to the yes. to, to the conversation. I don't benefit everyone else if I try and sort of represent the median of the room. It's it's better to, to bring in another fresh perspective. Um, but I am hoping that uh, some of these questions get unpacked a little bit more by by academics. Uh, one of the things that struck me is uh, the, the lack of interest among Australian academics in understanding the factional structure because and how that shapes Australian politics. Not in the least. I've uh, I've outlined a whole range of uh, uh, numbers in the in the speech. Um, I've published one of the few pieces that's been you published have, on Austra Australian have. factions. Um, I think it is an unwillingness to look inside uh, one of the most important black boxes in Australian yeah, politics. And it's because if you it help is me get secretive. that data, Andrew, yeah. I will write the paper. Well, it's it's also about being willing to to have conversations, and yeah. I think those you know those conversations could well go to the steel man side to talking about the role of factions in in improving electability and diversity, uh, and could also look at some of the challenges that we that we face. And can those those academic debates, I think, will help us make a strong party even stronger. Well, Maria, there's our challenge. I think we'll have to uh, get on to that. I mean, I've always found uh, writing about the factions. Um, or writing about factional matters quite challenging because you are relying on um, you can you you know secondhand information sometimes thirdhand information. It is quite hard to verify a number of the things that are said, and people are playing ducks and drakes not just within political parties but with the messaging of those political parties. And you know, having covered many leadership changes or or the momentum shifts that are designed to bring about leadership changes, sometimes perhaps illusory uh, momentum shifts uh, because the information is being used in that way. It is it is an opaque area and I think that goes some way to explaining it. It's also an area that's shifting. It's like trying to describe a cloud of, you know, trying to draw a cloud of smoke. I mean, the outlines of it are, are, um, are sometimes hard to uh, hard to define. But as you say, um, it's uh, it's an area that does warrant further study let me just ask you about what you want from this paper because you don't say you want to see the end of factions. You say you you want to see clearer space carved out for people not to be in them. 
That's right. So I'm not making the argument that Kevin Rudd once made that faction should be banned from the Labor Party. I'm not making the argument that John Faulkner once made that factions should be unable to bind their members. I'm simply making the argument that not joining a faction should be as valid a choice as joining a faction and that we should be very careful about a political party which is effectively saying to people, if you don't join a faction, you won't have a career in this party. You'll end up a second-class citizen. Uh, the risk of that is that a mass party that's always depended on its members to go out there and win elections isn't able to attract the next generation of activists. The people with really deep ties in the community who just want to join Labor and be Labor uh, feel as though uh, they're not willing to, to pick a tribe. Uh, and that in an era in which we worry that politics has become too tribal, uh, we're setting up teams within teams, uh, which is ultimately less attractive than it could be to progressive activists. Yeah, because you've got people inside saying, no, this dude's no good, when you think this dude is good. Um, as, a, as, a, as a new and young member, it's, a, it's sort of a bizarre... Or just telling you what to think. Yeah, telling you what to think and, and sort of corralling you. I, I, I wonder, let's just finish on this uh, because we're sort of out of time. I wonder what your thoughts are about just looking across the fence at the other side of politics whether the absence of muscularity uh, within the moderate faction of the Liberal Party was instrumental in that party ossifying further to the right and opening up that space for the Teals. Yeah, look, I think the Liberal Party is in a world of pain. Uh, it's yeah, at times had factions which are organised around personalities, which is the worst possible way of organising factions, uh, and now has... Uh, an extraordinary imbalance in its party room relative to even people who voted Liberal at the last election. Um, I don't see what Peter Dutton's strategy is for winning back the seats that were taken by the Teal Independents. Um, the idea that you can somehow win elect uh, elections by moving further away from the median voter um, strikes me as utterly crazy. Uh, now, it's in my electoral <laughs> interests that uh, Peter Dutton continues to uh, uh, go, go down the wrong road. Uh, but ultimately, for the health of Australia, it would be good if we had uh, a, an opposition that was challenging Labor at the centre uh, and which was uh, a, a viable electoral force. Um, so while the Labor Party is benefiting, I'm not sure Australia benefits from Peter Dutton's uh, move further and further towards the right. Maria, what's your thoughts on that in terms of um, whether the Liberal Party becoming more kind of hardened in its position has 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 kind of left that space for for people who have economically, as it's often described, sort of economically orthodox or or kind of conservative ideas. That is, they're fiscally conservative, but they're socially and environmentally more progressive. That seems to have been the divide uh, that has seen a lot of those liberal heartland seats, and they are real, you know, real liberal jewels. Leave the the Liberal Party. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's actually self evident. Like that's actually the core of the old Liberal Party. They're the people with money, social skills, the ability to organise, motivated. Um, it's it's actually not just that they've given up those seats. They've given up a tremendous amount of, of human capital. And we had George Brandison, I think, two weeks ago kind of making the point that a bunch of moderates had been like appointed um, as party directors and, and so on and so forth. But if they simply cannot reclaim that real estate with all of the actual spoils, jobs, financial support that parties get from the government, which actually can sustain activists in a career before they can win an election again. I don't actually 
that energy will have to go somewhere yeah, else. And, and, and if that's true, it's also probably true, confrontingly for you, Andrew, of the Labor Party to an extent, at least as a risk. And we saw the Greens take Griffith, for example, in, in Brisbane, um, perhaps because amongst those young people infusing, you know, those great infusions of new voters that, that, that occur each electoral cycle and that they're increasing, um, of course, over time, uh, think, not thinking that the Labor Party is sufficiently kind of um, energetic on some of those issues that are important to them. And that's a risk that potentially, without the sort of public debate you're talking about, without some louder voices, public voices in the Labor Party, Labor leaves itself a bit exposed to. And the danger, Mark, is that uh, once seats have been won by the Greens or by independents, they tend to be held. You know, you can point to a couple of exceptions in, in the lower house, uh, Lydia Thorpe, Karen Phelps, but basically the story is that uh, when electorates have elected a, a Green or an Independent, they tend to continue down. Yeah, that right path. back from Ted Mack, and and you know, um, there's a whole raft of them actually that have just sort of uh, you know Rebecca Sharkey now you know, have just consolidated their positions once elected. I suppose partly that's the um, the benefits of incumbency, the profile that you can get, the work that you can do, uh, and electors are suddenly realizing, hey, I've got a local member who actually does stuff. And that's, I think, partly because those uh, independent members tend to gain a higher profile than By a backbench party, party member would yeah. uh, would have. Uh, so it's it's an electoral risk that we need to be alive to. Uh, one of the ways of being alive to it is to be as, as democratic as possible, to be as large a party as possible. You know, one of the things I've been trying to do as uh, Assistant Minister for Charities is to grow the size of the community sector. One of the things I'm keen to do as a, a Labor Party activist is to grow the size of the Labor Party. Not just because it makes us a more powerful force electorally, but also because it makes us more representative and better able to more uh, engage with the community. Precisely, yeah. more dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, thank you so much for coming, Andrew. It's been really, really good to talk about these issues. And it's good that we're talking about the Labor side because we've spoken, as I said earlier, about the Liberal side a couple of times now in recent podcasts. And um, this has been, I think, a really useful exercise in looking at a party that's very well ensconced in power at the moment, but which, um, you know, that doesn't mean that it can just assume that past performance will indicate future success, as they say. Uh, as I say, thanks, Andrew, for coming in. Real pleasure. Thank you both for the conversation. That's Bye. it, Maria. Thanks. We'll be back again with uh, Democracy Sausage next week. As I always say at this time, you can contact us uh, on email. Our address is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Sorry about the podcast being late this week. Uh, had to do with um, medical emergencies, pet associated, hopefully now resolving. And um, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.